You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. And so we open up with this, with this letter from 1 John, much the same way that his gospel began, don't we? Very first words in his letter, that which was from the beginning. He opened his gospel account, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He just wrote that gospel before he wrote this letter. This letter, the next letter, and the third letter are all written in close succession to one another right after he wrote the gospel, somewhere in the same decade uh, period that that he wrote these things. He was the last gospel writer, and these letters were the last things that that he would pen before he would ultimately die. John's an old man when he's writing these things. He was an old man when he wrote his gospel. He was an old man when he wrote these letters. And I think that there is something of that showing through in this letter and in his gospel. I think that we see in John a, the tenderness of a pastor, which I'm going to point out this morning, but I also see an urgency to ensure that he is handing faithfully over the fullness of the gospel to the church age as the apostolic age comes to an end. John is the last living disciple, the last living apostle. His friends are gone. He's an old man living in Ephesus at the time of this writing. You might remember that Jesus told him Son, behold your mother, as he essentially entrusts his mother over to John at the cross. And John faithfully takes care of her in Jerusalem, in the area around Jerusalem, for the duration of her life. And then Jerusalem falls in AD 70. And he lived through all that persecution period of Emperor Nero. And then he relocates from Jerusalem to the area of Ephesus for the last 20 or so years of his life where he continues his ministry there. And it's from Ephesus that church historians say that he wrote his gospel and he wrote these letters. And there's a lot going on in the world and in the church and in specific around Ephesus at the time that he's writing these letters and at the time that he's writing his gospel primarily what I want to point out as I, as I preach this letter for you guys is that John is laboring very specifically for people he loves to combat two heresies that have already made their way into the church before the apostles are even gone. Two major heresies moving throughout the church before the apostles are even gone. Now, the big overarching heresy, maybe some of you have heard of it, is called Gnosticism. And this wouldn't come into its maturity until the the second century. But here in the first century, two heresies that are called proto-Gnostics are are called Docetism and Serinthianism. Docetism and Serinthianism. And they're already taking shape here in the first century before John passes away. Now, these two proto-Gnostic beliefs would, f- would work together to form a more mature Gnostic belief in the second century, but Gnosticism as a whole is a belief that kind of weds the Greek dualism, the thought that, that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another, it, kind of to oversimplify it, to say that the physical world is evil and the spiritual world is good and that the act of becoming more spiritual is the act of denying the flesh and, and being more spiritual. And the primary way that you would get there is through ascending into higher thought, 
that there was special or secret esoteric knowledge that you could ascend to through, through sensuality and through um, self-denial, and you could somehow ascend into this state of, of higher being. And because they believed that the spiritual world was good and that the, the, the physical world was bad, it was an offensive thought to them, or at least a difficult thought for them, to think that God became flesh, that, that the God, the supreme pure one became flesh. This was a non-category for them in this thought. And so, so this is what I mean when I say that the duality of Greek thought. They, well, they also merged it with Eastern mysticism. They had taken these things together. The Eastern mystics were the ones who kind of believed that, that spirituality is something you attained through higher knowledge. And so, so flesh, flesh bad, spirit good, and I attain it through this kind of Eastern mysticism of, of achieving higher thinking. Okay, so that was, now Docetism specifically within Gnosticism was already present in John's age, and what this claim was that Jesus actually never lived bodily. This was a fairly simple heresy to argue against because he'd only been gone like 50 years, but they were already claiming that Jesus had never actually dwelled bodily, that his bodily life was a mere illusion, a mere illusion, that people were seeing things that God was allowing them to see, but that Jesus didn't actually have a body. And then the Serinthianists, they believed that Jesus had a body, but that Jesus himself was not the Christ, that Jesus was a mere man, and that the Christ was a spirit, and that the spirit of the Christ came upon a person, Jesus, at his baptism, and carried him through his three years of ministry, and then departed from him before he was crucified. And so what made Jesus the Christ was merely that the Christ came upon him for that three-year period. This was a second heresy present in John's day at the time of his writing. So these, again, are called Docetism and Serinthianism. Now, the founder of Serinthianism, Serenthus, he died around AD 100. We think John died somewhere around year 90. And so he was a contemporary of John. He was living in Ephesus and spreading his belief throughout Ephesus where John lived at the time that he wrote this. And so uh, I'm not just reaching a little bit to think that this would have been influencing why John was writing what he was writing. It's so clearly in response to some of this stuff that we're going to see that I want you to kind of hold that in the back of your mind, okay? And so again, two lies we're working against. One of them is that Jesus's life was merely an illusion, that he did not have a body, and the other being that Jesus had a body, but he himself was not the Christ. It was merely that he was taken up by the Spirit to seem like the Christ for a few years. Of course, this also required them to deny the virgin birth and all the rest of it. So I hold this out to you to say, John's getting after, or he's combating, some heresies that are making their way into the church in Ephesus. And he gives the reason for writing his letter in 1 John 5, in verse 1, he wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So his purpose for writing 1 John is, well, he's writing it to an audience. Who is his audience? You who believe in the name of the Son of God. So this letter is for believers. It's for you. And it was for the first century believers in the area of Ephesus. And his reason for writing it to them was that they may know that they have eternal life. John wants you to know, you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you have eternal life. Now, you, you feel like, okay, well, why would he have to 
assure believers that they have eternal life. But there's a difference between the faith and the assurance of all of the promises of the faith, isn't there? Are you Christian prone to doubt some of the promises and the assurances of those promises of the faith? Yes? Along with me, I can say, I I believe in the name of the Son of God. I really do. But I'm prone to doubt certain promises or implications of the gospel in my life. And the one that was being specifically attacked in John's day was the thought of the resurrection. It was the thought of eternal life. Now, I don't know that the, that, that Docetism or Serenthianism was intentionally trying to sow insecurity in believers about eternal life or about the resurrection, but John recognized that this is a necessary product of denying the bodily life of Jesus or the godhood of Jesus. He said, if you start to question those things, what comes under assault is the assuredness that you have eternal life, and he's going to walk us through why? And so what I hope to do this morning as we work through these things that John claims is to give you, as a first order of importance, assurance of your eternal life as you look to the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning. And so here he's immediately pointing us back to the gospel. He's Im- and everybody would have read it because he wrote it and sent it out all, right, all at the same time. So everybody would have read this gospel and they would have known, he, okay, he's pointing us back to that, to that Jesus, to this eternal Jesus, to this big Jesus. So even though John's whole po- purpose here is to point out all of the ways that Jesus does in fact have a body, that Jesus did in fact walk among us, that's his point. He's saying, I'm not doing so at the compromise of any of my claims about his godhood, about his deity, that I'm not putting that aside or lowering his God status in order to, to appeal to you to believe that he did walk among us as a man. In fact, he opens with the same opening of his gospel of that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands concerning this word of life the life that was made manifest. We've seen it, and we testify to it. He says this eternal God that was from the beginning, that one I wrote about in my first chapter of John, of the Gospel of John, we've touched him. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've looked upon him. You say, you already said that, John. You said said that you saw him. No, we looked upon him. We intently studied him. We beheld him. We touched him with our hands. John specifically in his gospel account documents how in the upper room before he was betrayed that he leaned up against his bosom and talked to him. We handled him. Just to say, he wasn't an apparition. He wasn't an illusion. We weren't confused. We beheld him. He's saying you can trust our account. And you'll notice over and again, he says, we, 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 we. Those which we saw with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we touched with our hands. It's of him that we testify and that we proclaim. But at this point, John's pretty much the only apostle left. I can't say with certainty when each of the apostles died, but with 
much confidence we, we're guessing that he's the last one left. Maybe there's a couple of stragglers somewhere in the world. But they're all martyred except for John. And probably already by now. And yet he's saying we, expressing solidarity with the testimony of the other apostles who have gone before him. And so I want you to picture old man John thinking backwards 50 years to these experiences that he had with Jesus, thinking about the testimony of the witness of the apostles that has gone, over, gone out over the face of the earth and successfully planted churches across the face of the earth that are now taking root such that there's a new generation of believers coming up and there's already heretics seeking to influence these churches. And he's looking out at this story of his life and he's thinking back on this gospel which he's just finished writing, recounting all of these beautiful things. And he's looking out at the church in front of him, this church which is to take the baton from him as he passes and ends the apostolic age. This church which is to carry the gospel forward. And he says, this foundation that my friends have laid, that the apostles have laid, that, that's based on the testimony of what we have seen and held and, 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 and beheld with our, with our eyes and that we've heard, that we looked upon, this foundation is trustworthy. In church, I want you to hear it, that the foundation laid by the apostles, this foundation of which Christ himself is the cornerstone, it is trustworthy. The church age that we are in today is, is built upon the foundation laid by the apostles, the testimony of the apostles. This is important because all kinds of other testimonies spring forth starting now in this letter and ever since. And ever since. These guys, the, the, the Gnostics, they would write their own gospels. By the second century, the gospel of Thomas would, would be all over the place. There be, and they, they were obviously dismissed at the, at the councils, but they're out there whole additional gospels written testifying to a different way to salvation, a different way to becoming right with God. And John is saying, no, we, the testimony of the apostles, the ones who were there, the ones who touched him, the ones who walked with him, our testimony, it's true. And it's trustworthy. And so he says, it's significant that you trust the testimony of the apostles about the godhood and the manhood of Jesus Christ in this passage. What I'm going to hold out to you is what today Christians, they call it the hypostatic union. This is the union of the two natures of Christ, Jesus as God and Jesus as man. Now again, I said John's not sacrificing anything about the godhood of Jesus in here. See, God in his gospel, or Jesus in his gospel, he's worshipped. He is prayed to. He is sinless. He knows all things. He gives eternal life. He forgives sins. He judges the wicked. All the fullness of deity dwells in him, according to Colossians 2. God, or John presents God in the nature of Jesus all throughout his gospel, doesn't he? I mean, we just spent 15 months talking about this truth that John is, is loudly espousing, that Jesus is himself God. Jesus is himself God. And so he says, yes, there's this, there, one of the attributes of Jesus is his eternality, that he was in the beginning. Colossians 1, 16, 17, Paul testifies, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, the author says, He is the same, Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever. Even in the Old Testament, when God spoke through the prophets, when he spoke to the people of Israel in Micah chapter 5, he gives this prophecy through Micah. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel. This is about Jesus. Whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient days. And so even back then, there are these shadows given by God that there is one who is to come who is of the ancient days. These are, these are not new ideas about Jesus. Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 2, Jesus says of himself from the throne, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In John opening his letter saying that which was from the beginning, he is saying all of that stuff, about Jesus, 100% true. He is fully God. We do not have to sacrifice his eternality or his deity, his God status, in order to understand him as fully man. He says, of that eternal God, we heard him, we saw him, we looked upon him, and we touched him with our hands concerning this word of life that was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We've seen it. We testify to it, and we proclaim it to you for eternal life. It's of this God that we're writing it down. And so of, of this, this manhood status of Jesus, that Jesus is fully man, we see in his gospel that he worshiped the Father, that Jesus worshiped the Father, that he prayed to the Father, that he was tempted, that he grew up in wisdom, that he was born, that he died, that he had a body of flesh and bones, that he hungered and he thirsted. We see all kinds of attributes of his humanity in display. In John 1.14, right after he declares all this stuff about in the beginning was the word, he then says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, beheld it. Glory as of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. We beheld it. Philippians 2, verse 5, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. It is not insignificant to any of the apostles that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And some of you guys at this point are like, why are you going on about this? And why, why would John go on about this? And our author in Hebrews tells us why. He tells us why it's so important that Jesus be fully man as well. Ephesians 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, the children, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that's Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
And so the reason why Jesus had to be made like his brothers in all respects is in order that he could be a great high priest for humanity, a great high priest for us. And it makes sense that John, with eternity in view, saying, I'm writing this letter in order to assure you that you have eternal life, would be thinking about this. Because if Jesus was not fully human, then what we just read in Hebrews 2 about him becoming and sharing in flesh and blood would be nullified. And he said that he did it in order to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. John was saying, you don't have to be afraid of death because Christ was made like you. He died, he went ahead of you into death and accomplished what he said he accomplished at the cross. Guys, there's nothing short of the loss of the gospel in the the denying of Jesus as fully man. If he was not fully man, then he cannot go into the grave for you. He cannot live for you, he cannot die for you, and he cannot raise with you. If he did not dwell bodily, then he cannot do those things. And if he is not God, then he cannot do those things. He cannot unite you with himself by the power of the Holy Spirit if he is not God. We must be joined to Christ in his life that was lived for us, his death that was died for us, and in his resurrection, which he took up for us by the Holy Spirit. And if those things didn't happen bodily, there's no hope for bodily creatures like us. We are not merely saved in spirit. We are saved in body by our Jesus who reigns bodily. Do you understand? So that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So after holding out these two beauties, the Godhood of Jesus and the manhood of Jesus, and holding them together and testifying that our testimony is true, he says we testify about it. He says that we proclaim it. He says that we write it down. Now, regarding testifying, that's a legal term. What, he said, what he's saying is that all of our claims hold up to scrutiny. They'd hold up in a court of law. By claiming solidarity with the other apostles, by saying, I'm not just a one-off guy saying this. Serinthus, that's a one-off guy. His testimony wouldn't hold up in a court of law. Docetus, his testimony wouldn't hold up in a court of law. But what we say, we testify to it. We, I, and all the other apostles, all the eyewitness accounts, all of those who have gone out. See, the Bible is about this Jesus, the Word become flesh. The prophets prophesied about Him, and the Father bore witness about Him. The Holy Spirit bore witness about Him. The works that Jesus did on this earth bore witness about Himself. All the multitudes bore witness about Him. The apostles bore witness about Him, and now we bear witness about Him, Christ Himself bore witness about himself. The the testimony is true. We testify. It holds up. We've got all the backing that we need, John says. We testify it and we proclaim it, he says. With authority, we proclaim it. We declare it. 
We're not really appealing and we're not really begging. We're just telling you what's true. And we're believing that because it's true that the Word will do what the Lord sets it forth to do, that it will accomplish what He purposes it to accomplish. So we merely proclaim it. And so he says, our testimony is true. We're testifying it and we are proclaiming it. Why? That you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I love this verse more than all the other verses in this passage because when he says us, he's talking about his dead buddies. What, what John is saying is he wants, through the proclaiming of the word, through, through the testimony which is true, through receiving the preached word of the risen Christ, that you would have fellowship with us, me and my martyred friends, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. He had every confidence that nothing had changed about the fellowship that His friends were engaged in with the Father and with the Son, although they had already tasted death and although He would do so soon. He regards Himself to have fellowship with the Father and the Son while He walks bodily on this earth, and he regards his friends to have fellowship with the Father and the Son, though they do not walk bodily on this earth. Again, elevating this truth that Jesus Christ is not merely God, and he is not merely man, but he is fully both. God of both the living and the dead. And our fellowship, he says, with the Father and the Son is not broken by death. And I want you guys to join in that fellowship with us. And we're writing these things also so that our joy may be complete. Now, I was thinking a lot this week about why does he say that he's writing them so that his joy may be complete? And I'm guessing a little bit here, but I'm thinking about if I'm John and I'm nearing the end of my race and I'm seeing some of the tumultuous stuff going on on the earth. I'm seeing the, the reign of Nero for all that time. And then I'm seeing all, all of these heresies spreading throughout Ephesus, and I'm getting ready to be done running my race, and my friends are already gone. How, how am I going to feel like I finished well? I'm going to write it down. John didn't have a lot of time to write it down until now. A side note, what's different about John's gospel than the other gospel accounts, which I always thought was pretty cool, was that John names everybody. Where a lot of the earlier gospel accounts, John, like I said, was the last gospel account to be written. A lot of the earlier gospel accounts, they don't name anybody hardly in any of the stories. Because I was like, and there was a family from this region, and they had this thing going on. It's like super anonymous all the time. And then John's like, and Andrew, and then Philip. He's always naming the guy, except for himself. He never names himself. And one of the theories about why John did that was because he was no longer under the burden of protective anonymity. That while Emperor Nero was reigning and persecution was really high on Christians and every time that you knew anything about, about where a Christian might, might live, neighbors really turning in their friends, you'd go and you'd be killed. Nero was lighting up Christians as, as torches in his garden. And so the early gospel writers who wrote their gospels really early in their ministry and then were out there constantly facing the threat of death and anyone they wrote about would then face the threat of death, they gave protective anonymity to the people they wrote stories about. 
because to name them would mean to put a target on their head. But by the time John's writing his gospel, they're all dead and gone. There's no need for protective anonymity. And so he's naming everyone in his gospel. Oh yeah, that story that you read about from that gospel that, that uh, John Mark finished with Peter's help 40 years ago, that, that was Andrew that said that. I love that he, that he does some clarifying work in his gospel. I think it's similar with the letters that he's writing. I'm writing this down that my joy may be complete. I want the fullness of the story documented before I go. I don't want any detail spared. Anything that I, that I think you need to know, anything that the Lord gives to me, I want to write it down for you. This is where you start to see some of the pastoral nature of John. He's not merely an apostle, but he loves his local flock. And so he's writing these things down that his own joy may be complete. Like he feels satisfied to know that he left this for us. He feels satisfied to know that we can pick this up and be encouraged by it. And again, let's remember, what is the encouragement that he wants us to receive? Well, in his first paragraph, he says that one of the encouragements he wants us to have is that our fellowship is with them, with the Father and with the Son. And that the great encouragement that he wants us to receive is that I write these things down to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to have confidence in your eternal fellowship with the Father and the Son and the apostles and all those who have gone before you in death. He wants you to have confidence in it, church. And so I would be remiss to make the main point and takeaway of the introduction anything other than that. I want to hold out to you as like one point with a big circle around it. You will live forever with the Father and the Son in fellowship with John and all the other apostles and all those who have gone before you in death who were found in Christ, who were united with him. What does that mean for you? How is that supposed to change the way that you live today? Think through it. If you were in the first century with John and hearing that maybe Jesus was just an illusion, it's not like you're not hearing these things anymore. They just don't call themselves Docetus and Serinthus anymore. But you are hearing people all the time telling you things like the teachings of Jesus are valuable and worthy to be followed. I just don't buy the whole life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is God thing. Many people have tried to reduce Jesus to just a good teacher, but isn't that exactly the same thing as saying he wasn't really a person? He wasn't really God in human form. He was just spirit. Like we ascend to goodness through higher thinking about what he said, not through the actual application of an actual life lived for you and died for you and taken up. When we remove the personhood of Jesus or the Godhood of Jesus and we reduce him to just his teachings, we try to live according to his teachings and that's how we're going to be okay, suddenly all of our confidence in eternity and resurrection and salvation go away because the central parts of the gospel are removed and we're, and we're now believing a salvation of works. I'm saved by listening to Jesus' teachings, not saved by Jesus himself. That's very similar to these early heresies, and it's so subtle. And John says, my joy is complete 
by letting them all know, letting you all know, He really lived for you. What change is that supposed to be knocking off of your life today? What confidence is that supposed to be knocking off or applying to you today? I can't know. But for me, what I know is that if my Jesus lived for me, then I don't need to add anything. That if he lived the perfect life for me, then I don't need to add my works to the life that he lived for me. That's really good news. If my Jesus died for me, really, then I don't need to beat myself up or pay for my own sins. If he really rose for me, then I don't need to overcome death. And this life is not all there is, so I don't need to stuff it full of every good comfort that I can fill it with because I'm going to live forever with him. Each aspect of the gospel invites you, church, into a deeper comfort in the person of Jesus. If you reject that he lived for you, died for you, or rose for you, then you are robbed of a great comfort, and John wants you to have it. But first you have to believe that he was a human. And that was what was at stake in this letter. And so I hold it out to you guys that your God became flesh and he dwelt among us. That's your point today. And if he did that, then he did everything that you could ever do better than you could because he was also fully God. And so my invitation to you today is to consider where it is that you're trying to help him out as if he wasn't human enough for you or God enough for you. And lay that down in repentance, confess it to him, and trust in him alone for your salvation and your assurance of your resurrection. That's what John wanted, so that's what we're going to ask for. Let's ask for it now.